Welcome to the Critical Media Studies Podcast. We're your hosts, Mike Rapici and Barry Falk. Hey, Barry, good morning. How are you? Good, uh, good morning to you, Michael. I am fine and ready to talk about Adorno. Indeed, indeed. So today- And Horkheimer. Yes, both of them. And Juliet. Uh, today and we Juliet. are uh, embarking on part three of our grand mission to talk about the dialectic of enlightenment. This is uh, excursus to Juliet or enlightenment and morality. Um, the plan today is to talk about Kant and how Kant's enlightenment really paves the way for uh, the Marquis de Sade. I think what's going on in this chapter is, okay, where were we before? We'll mention that briefly. Where we were before <laughs> is we were in ancient Greece uh, and we were thinking about Odysseus and the ways in which the Homeric poets um, are rationalizing uh, rationalizing myth in the Odyssey and the ways in which Odysseus's mastery of nature and also his cruelty, the cruelty of some of his exploits, um, is kind of determined or anticipates other moments of enlightenment in Western culture. So we were we were way back when, right? Mm -hmm. 2000 plus years ago. Now we fast forward in this chapter to the European Enlightenment. We're talking about, there's a range of people, a range of writers that get mentioned in this chapter. There's Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche from the 19th century. There's Bernard Mandeville and some other rationalist thinkers from the early modern times or from the 17th century. Um, there's Immanuel Kant, who's living during the Enlightenment and actually coins the term in one of his essays. And then not aware of each other, <laughs> with no awareness of each other, there's also the Marquis de Sade, who has a front row seat at the French Revolution, which mm -hmm. for Kant was a signal, doesn't know anything about Sade, but the French Revolution was for Kant the big signal event of enlightenment. He thought that was the political, Kant was uh, famously a recluse, not a recluse, but a famously a provincial. He lived in his hometown. He would read the newspapers daily. Uh, for European news, but he thought that philosophy, you know, he could stay home and do philosophy or go to the university and do philosophy. He is very, he's not a cosmopolitan, he's a cosmopolitan thinker, but he's not a journeyer or traveler. He stays at home. So when there's a French Revolution, he's watching the, during the French Revolutionary events, he's reading the papers and he's absorbing it. And he's engaged with foreign events in a way he never was before because he feels oh, you know, I've been talking about enlightenment for a while now. Hell, it's happening. It's happening in France. So there's a political equivalence. And now Saad is a part of that that Kant doesn't know about. So let me try and bring the threads together. What I think is going on here is we fast forwarded like 2000 years. Uh, and now we're in the enlightenment era, the, the era of European thought that we, you know, that we contemporarily, we, we sort of, labeled the Enlightenment. Kant designated his era as an age of enlightenment. Um, Saad is very, Marquis de Saad is very proud of being a revolutionary. So 
So even though these are all in, in these thinkers that they mentioned, Adorno Horkheimer mentioned, even though um, we can place them in the age of enlightenment, we tend to, and here I'm talking about contemporary readers, not just readers in 1940s, but also readers in 2025 or whatever. What's our year? We're 2022. Um, but, you know, most readers would say, well, I realize that Kant and Saad coexisted at the same time and they were affiliated with enlightenment events to a greater or lesser degree um, but i i don't think there's any connect, connect necessary connection between kant and sods sods a pornographer sod wrote erotic books kant is a german philosopher and i don't see any connection and most readers would i think adorno horkheimer soon most readers would say, I don't see any connection between these two people, um, you know, beyond a very loose uh, connection. And then they would say, furthermore, they would say, Kant has nothing to do with fascism. So this gets to the mission of the chapter that we're going to be talking about. Um, the mission of this chapter is that Adorno and Horkheimer want to say, not only is there a connection, <laughs> there is a necessary connection between three things that we haven't really thought about uh, as being connected. And those three things are the Kantian enlightenment, Saudian liberation, the Saudian notion of sexual liberation um, tied to the French Revolution, sex as revolution, which is what Saad is really thinking about. And the third thing, fascism, which is the thing they always want to connect enlightenment, certain forms of enlightenment rationality to. So that's what the, that's the big business of the chapter. I think that's what the chapter is trying to do. Yeah, I, I think that just to to add on to that and sort of sure focus sure. the argument a little bit. What I really think this chapter is doing is saying that, um, and and I'll use uh, Horkheimer Adorno's, Adorno's words here that the Kantian optimism about the enlightenment is really short-sighted or misguided. Uh, it, it's it's not, it, in, in practice, it doesn't quite work out the way that I like wants. the last one. I like the last one in practice. Because and, let, and, let me just say this real briefly. One thing that they have to do, it's a very careful negotiation because you know, Khan is very aware and they show this. Uh, You're talking about the ways in which Kant is optimistic about enlightenment, and he is. But they quote passages, Adorno Horkheimer quote passages, where he does realize that if you don't have a commitment to morality, that he cannot ground within his or rationalize or explain within it, within the system of enlightenment, that if you lose those moral sentiments, it's all going to go to hell. Mm -hmm. He's very aware of that. Now, that's not the op he is optimistic, though, to use your word, and I'll let you go on here i'm sorry to interrupt but the um the optimism is that kant does believe that it's possible for reason to be autonomous without necessarily falling play prey to that blindness but he is very aware that the the program could go wrong mm -hmm. yeah i think that to, to get back to your earlier statement about saying that you you would look at kant on one hand and the marquis de sade on the other and say that other than a historical overlap, that these two have nothing in nothing common, yeah. that the argument put forth here is that Kant is the, I'll say it this way, 
that Kant is the optimistic version of enlightenment, whereas the Marquis Lovely. de Sade is the practical Lovely. enactment of enlightenment. And so, formulation, so, so that I think is the plan of today, rather than trying to connect this particular chapter to, uh, you know, the current state of affairs in 2022, or if you're living in very Falk's world, 2025. Um, <laughs> I'm that, always three years ahead just of my think, time. Think, thinking on. ahead um, that, that the, the really the, the, the mission of today is to look at how we move from Kant to the Marquis de Sade so quickly and what the implications of Kant's, you know, the implications of what happened when Kant's optimism meets reality. Um, so I, 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 we found a, a passage in here that I'm going to read. And if you're watching on YouTube, we're going to share highlighted in four different colors to identify the four different sections of the argument that we're going to make today. Um, and we're going to, we're going to play it out. So I'm going <clears> to, <throat> excuse me, I'm going to read slowly. And if you're watching on YouTube, thanks. And you can read along with me. Um, <laughs> so here we go. Um, what, would, what would Adorno and Horkheimer say of our color coding? I don't know if they would like it. Um, that's, 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 that's beyond, that's beyond me right now. Yeah, the reach of this podcast. Uh, this is, it, it's enough for me to try and decode what they're saying here, <laughs> let alone what they would say. Anyways. Um, so the, the text says, the root of Kantian optimism, according to which moral actions are reasonable, even when base ones are likely to prosper, is a horror of relapsing into barbarism. If, Kant writes in response to Haller, one of these great moral forces, reciprocal love and respect, were to collapse, then nothingness with gaping maw would drink the whole realm of moral beings like a drop of water. So, so yeah, do you so, want to? Uh, yeah, let me let me gloss this. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'll start us on this. So yeah, to, to me please. the the root of the Enlightenment mission is reason, right? And reason should stand on its own. It should not be uh, directed by an external force, right? As I as I make my way through this, I keep coming back to the idea that reason simply is it should be self-evident and we can't force it or filter it through any other apparatus mm -hmm. and so what happens here in what kant is saying here is that uh according to optimism the moral actions are reasonable even when base ones are more likely to prosper is a horror of relapsing into barbarism if one of the great moral forces, reciprocal love and respect were to collapse, then nothingness would drink the whole realm of moral beings like a drop of water. This is the first problem. Kant realizes that yeah, if we right. lose our morality, then man, we are in trouble. And yes. the problem that we're going to get to is that without those external forces, when you detach reason from all of the externalities, the communal aspect of reason uh, or the communal implications of reason, we'll fast forward here. We get the Marquis de Sade. Um, mm. So you want, that's, that's, that's my, my intro gloss on this. Do you want to add to that? Uh, why, uh, how about I read the second part and then I, the, because I think I'll gloss the second part uh, in purple and beautiful purple. 
Uh, I'll ask the sec- I'll read the second part and gloss it because I think it directly pertains to sure. the first part. According to Kant, from the standpoint of scientific reason, moral forces are neutral drives and forms of behavior, no less than immoral ones, which they immediately become when no longer directed at that hidden possibility, but at when they become aimed at a reconciliation with power. And and this sentence explains what, you know, elaborates and explains the process that you just described, Michael. Uh, you were saying, well, there's something about without moral, uh, without that sort of moral foundation, Kant fears. This is what you read in the first passage. Kant confess, you know, this is a confession to one of his critics. He says, yeah, you know, I realize that if the great moral forces like lo- reciprocal love and respect, if they were no longer present then the rest of the edifice of rationality, and I'm sorry, the edifice of behavior, of moral behavior, the edifice of civilization would collapse. So, uh, but here's the problem. So Kant recognizes there is a problem, but in this second sentence, um, Adorno and Horkheimer explain why Kant is powerless to fix the problem. And the reason why is because a priori, to use Kant's terms, Khan has decided to do what you mentioned, Michael. Khan has decided for reason, he wants to exalt reason. He wants to illuminate and, and explicate the, um, the power of reason. And he wants to announce the autonomy of reason. Reason, in order to be reason, has to be fully autonomous over all domains. And so that means he has to put science first, right. a notion of scientific efficiency. And so because science and efficiency are exalted, even though Kant realizes there is a danger here, he can't fix the system. So, you know, he can't fix the problem that he creates because he gave away the game at the beginning by saying that reason is the same thing of um is the same thing as scientific reason and efficiency and self-preservation, the same self-preservation that Odysseus was uh, an exemplary hero of in you know, the last chapter. Because he says that is enlightenment, he can't preserve the moral foundation that he feels is necessary to preserve. So is that like, as I'm looking at this, that essentially is the yellow section here. And right. he says, and I was he says, to say the third sentence is that, yes. right? Enlightenment expels difference yeah. from theory, right? So, That's what we, it, so, so right. my, my, my understanding of that sentence is that basically, again, reason simply is there is no difference here. This right. is there, that right. the reason is, 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 is bedrock. It right. considers human actions and desires exactly as if it were dealing with lines, planes, and bodies. This is basically reducing yeah. everything. To, yeah. to to zeros and ones, right? This is no, there right. is no, exactly. there's, there's no moral filter Perfect. here. So if we take one plus two plus two and a half, somehow we get three in my math, right? Somehow we, we get fascism. We get we green. Get fascism. Well, that's it. We, we get the green section. So he says, freed from supervision <clears throat> by one's own class, right? In other words, once morality has, be, has been done away with, right? I'm no longer beholden to external concerns. This is all about the individual, my my own reason, right? I'm no longer concerned with 
uh, to, to oblige 19th century businessmen to maintain respect and reciprocal love, well, right? Was it becomes about self-preservation rather exactly. than the other more foundations. We have. And power and power. That's the other part of it. Right. Constant respect and reciprocal love. Fascism, which by its own iron discipline relieves its peoples of the burden of moral feelings, no longer yeah. need to observe any, any discipline. discipline. So this is how you get. So in in this, um, Michael chose this passage, and it was I I think it's kind of the key passage of the chapter because you have the three steps. You have here is you know we were talking about the the mission of this chapter. The mission of this chapter is to make us understand an equivalence or some kind of close relation between Kant, Saad, fascism. And in this passage, they walk us through three steps from Kant to fascism. Right. So in other words, what happens is when you embrace enlightenment thinking, you kill morality. Right. There is no longer. Is it that? Is it that? Or you allow, I think, I, I don't know. I push back much? Again, slightly. Uh, well, I, I would, yeah, I would want to temper it. And, but you tell me whether you agree with this. I would temper it and say this. Once you, what was the first part of your sentence again? Because the first part of it, I, I totally agree. Yeah, once you totally embrace with the Enlightenment Project, right? Okay. So embracing Enlightenment Project, let me rephrase Means, it. I think that allows, okay, once you embrace or articulate the Enlightenment Project, I, I was having an issue with the, the second part of it, you kill morality. It's like, not yeah, that. No. Yeah. You want to rephrase it? I you you relieve yourself of the burden to be overly concerned with someone else's self-preservation. Absolutely. Right. And therefore, self your own self-preservation becomes paramount. Takes precedence, yes. Yeah. And so what happens there, right, is, is that the enlightenment, you know, we've and we've talked about this in the in the prior episodes about this, that the stated goal of enlightenment is to do away with superstition, to dominate nature, right? To um, modernize and make everything as efficient as possible. The goal is self-preservation and mm -hmm. maximizing the efficiency of self-preservation. So two things happen in this, right? One, we, we, we do see a push back away from myth which is religion and religious doctrine. Um, part and parcel of that is the moral component. And so the what we've always considered morality now is shifted to a concern with self over others. And that's what happens. So the Enlightenment Project, uh, I spoke too quickly perhaps in saying it's the death of morality, but is certainly the inward shifting uh, to self-preservation, it leaves yes, it leaves an opening for for to be there. There is a ability now, or there is a possibility now that new values can come to the fore, and the new values that come to the fore are self-preservation, self-interest, and if self-interest comes to the fore, then power relations become dominant, and there we were where we saw it now. So the do we want to talk a little bit about how this fits in with Saad before we go to we have another passage we want to discuss but should I I'll try and I could try and describe and you can yeah go ahead me. go, go ahead just sort of how how Saad fits into this absolutely um so I mean let's see if I can say this concisely how does Saad fit into this so what's at the heart of uh, Adorno and Horkheimer I'll, I'll phrase this I'll make this a statement rather than 
to a question. I think Adorno and Horkheimer isolate and saw a project of enlightenment is human liberation from theology. Mm-hmm. That that first and foremost, yes, it it's articulated to sex. And sex is the primary model of expression in the Saudian system for this human liberation, the autonomy of reason, and a total and absolute atheism, a total and absolute, um, you know, the ultimate enlightenment tool, i.e. if enlightenment means the destruction of myth, that's the Saudian project. So Adorno and Horkheimer say that, you know, before anything else, there is an argument about the necessity that, you know, the necessary, there's an argument or a, a desire to liberate humanity from from myth. Mm-hmm. In, the, in the particular case uh, of Saad, there is, a, you know, a vehement anti-Catholicism. He identifies Catholicism as, you know, understandably enough, he, under, he identifies Catholicism as the linchpin ideology of the Anshan regime, what the revolutionary regime is trying to replace. And he understands the replacement of the old order with God and King at the head. He understands that there, you know, there's an overturning of the system. He wants humanity, untrammeled humanity, aided only by reason. This gets into what you were talking about before. Humanity only guided by reason is going to take the place of God and King. So that's the primary foundation. Now, over that, or the main way in which Saad understands human liberation is through sexual liberation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is where Adorno and Horkheimer come in. They think that it's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. It's a logical fulfillment of the Saadian system that sexual liberation, because Saad begins... I mean, think about what we just talked about. We talked about how Kant's premise that reason needs to be fully autonomous of everything, how it kind of entails with it or creates within this new system of enlightenment, a weakness, that, you know, a possibility that new values could take over and dominate the system. With Saad, just sort of to bring it to close with Saad, with Saad, Adorno and Horkheimer think the same thing is going on. Or the same thing happened. Parallel development. Saad begins with a system, with a systemic desire to exalt humanity over, over myth, and to exalt reason. Very sex is the main vehicle for this human liberation, according to Adorno and Horkheimer, because reason, this notion of this undialectical notion of reason, is at the heart of the system. It's inevitable that sex in um, in Saad turns out to be bloody, turns out to be, uh, uh, you know, something that's guided, as they mention over and over again. It's guided by efficiency. Love goes by the wayside, as we're going to talk about it a little bit. Um, and uh, it becomes a business of uh, power and don- domination. Yeah, just to, I think, to simplify it, if you think about what sure. the Marquis de Saad has done, in terms of the reframing of sex as it fits the enlightenment model here. Yeah, right? that, much better. Much it's, better he's he's liberated it, right? And so how is he liberated? And what has what has that liberation done in terms of reframing it? Okay. So sex prior to the enlightenment, right, is something that takes place in marriage 
as a sort of mutual engagement. Okay, now you can argue you want uh, about sort of the hierarchy between men and women in this, but it is still a mutual act. I don't think it's a mistake that the protagonist is female here. Again, it is a liberation, but it goes from being a mutual, yeah. <laughs> a mutual project, okay, um, to, to a, a power game, to power a power game, yeah. but but also yeah. a very yeah. singular yeah. power game. This is sure. about pleasure, and it is about. Juliet's Absolutely. pleasure. It is not about uh, some sort of um, mutual uh, sanctioned project, no. right? It's about maximizing my own pleasure. It becomes similar to economic projects. For the sake of pleasure itself, though. It is no longer aimed at reproduction or sure. at, uh, you sure. know, uh, church uh, or, or the role of the church in marriage. This has nothing to do with any of that. In fact, right. Right. there. If you and I'm not going to go through this uh, in graphic detail, you can find it. There's this really sort of passage that should be graphic, but it's so clinical about the maximization of every orifice. And I'll just leave it there. But sex has become a business of efficiency, of maximizing efficiency in the name of pleasure. But you have to remember that pleasure is sort of this emotional, non-reasoned experience that is a secondary or tertiary concern to the act itself. So in a weird way, Juliet's liberation both kills sex and the enjoyment of sex in the name of chasing down some maximized version of pleasure. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a very bizarre and sort of twisted reordering of things. But but according to Dork, Dorno Horkheimer, they naturally fall. They naturally follow because of the premises of his yes. system. Because how he understands, because of how Saad understands liberation and human emancipation, necessarily the system becomes one of it's about maximizing my own self interest and it's about efficiency and it's no longer about pleasure in in the older sense, whatever that older sense might have been. No, right? it it becomes about well as they as they argue. We'll, we'll jump into this now, I guess. It becomes mm -hmm. about cruelty. This becomes about domination. So this is a good segue. Yeah. So I'm 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 gonna jump in and see if I can share Let's again. Get some color coding here going we, on. Here, here we go. So now we're in yeah. blue and we've lost ourselves. Let me pull ourselves back down here. There we are. Okay. So a little further down. Rather than with tenderness, pleasure makes its pact with cruelty, and sexual love becomes what, according to Nietzsche. It always was in its means war and at its basis, the moral hatred of the sexes with both the male and the female zoology teaches us love or sexual attraction is originally and preeminently sadic. It is positively gratified by the infliction of pain. It is as cruel as hunger. Thus, as its final result, civilization leads back to the terrors of nature. Let me a quick gloss on that last sentence. By all means. This is another sort of constant theme of the book, right? Um, a constant project throughout the book, Adorno and Horkheimer, this is called the dialectic of enlightenment, which means that they're always interested when enlightenment and barbarism flip over into each other, when they morph, uh, when these things morph, because their idea of dialecticizing enlightenment means that they have they're aware of the ways in which once you articulate enlightenment 
it can become barbarism. Also, there are articulations of barbarism, myth, and ritual, uh, or there are articulations of myth and ritual that can lead to barbarism. Here, we have a typical, the kind of reversal that Adorno and Horkheimer are looking for, uh, where we have civilization, human enlightenment at, at its zenith in Saad, leading back to, what was the quote, uh, terrors of nature? Mm-hmm. Civilization. Yeah, the final barbarism. result, civilization leads yeah. back to the terrors of nature. So just to follow up on barbarism. this, they go a little bit down. Mm-hmm. To reason, devotion to the adored creature appears as idol worship. So in Gotta other get words, rid of it. Right, get rid you, of it. so the Enlightenment project essentially kill, is, is the death of love, right? Like we no longer have love at the core of these acts. This is now, uh, you know, purely a, a, a just a, it's a tra- it's a transaction in the name of pleasure and that's that's how you get juliet essentially i i i wouldn't say that you know again i i, I resist the language like you know these ideas kill things they don't kill things but what they do they subtly kill things they damage things because in con in sod there is no reason to have love there's no more, there's no rational legitimation or sanction for love in the system. There's no rational place for love in the system. Therefore, it gets excluded. I think and that's how I would put it. I don't think it's like killing things. Like I don't mean I don't things. I don't mean it is in as in an actual murder of love. Yeah, what it's I'm not saying a murder is, of ideas. It yeah. is it is it is a marginalization. It is a push. This is no longer. I so think I, yeah, when I say it's the death of love, or yeah. earlier I said the death yeah. of morals. What what I what I should probably have said instead is marginalization. This is the it's marginalization. Yes, right. It, it is it is no longer part and parcel of the project. Absolutely. There we go. Okay, so we have now moved morality to the side. We have now moved love to the side. So the question is, I guess, what next? And for that, uh, I will uh, refer back again to our dear friends. Uh, The problem with the Enlightenment, let me find where we are here and share the screen again. The Great Reveal, which text are we going, which part of the text are we going to talk about next? At the end, the problem with the Enlightenment project. They say, in Saad as in Mandeville, private vices are anticipatory historiography of public virtues in the totalitarian era. It is because they did not hush up the impossibility of deriving from reason a fundal fundamental argument against murder, but proclaimed it from the rooftops that Saad and Nietzsche <laughs> are still vilified above all by progressive thinkers. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think this is an example of, and, and there are many examples of this, of, uh, of this in the text. Of, this is an example of Adorno and Horkheimer's very mordant wit. So the problem with Saad and Nietzsche for for you know, contemporary thinkers, they're you know, contemporary thinkers, 20th century thinkers, is that they gave the game away. They said, hey, you really want enlightenment? You got to get rid of these ideas. You, you got to get rid, you got to admit the impossibility of deriving from reason any argument for love, any rational basis, uh, any, uh, you have to deny that uh, the possibility of presenting a rational argument against murder. 
mm-hmm. or a rational defense of love or any of these sort or pity. That's another sort of emotion and moral, moral, moral trait that uh, are submitted to genealogy and sort of humiliated by both Saad and Nietzsche, according to Adorno. Or kind of. You have to give up in the idea of having a moral basis. But most thinkers did. Most thinkers like Kant weren't brave enough to say that. Kant wanted, um, so in a curious way, Saad and Nietzsche, after criticizing pretty harshly, Adorno, uh, Adorno and Horkheimer um, do some harsh critiques of both Saad and Nietzsche. But in that sentence, I think there is a kind of bitter, you know, cynical or jokey suggestion that at least they were honest. Mm-hmm. Kant was intellectually dishonest. He thought you could keep morality and you could get rid of morality in the Enlightenment system. Or you could say there's no rational basis for it, but you could keep it. Saad knew better. Nietzsche knew better. And now we sure know better. The Nazis don't even need to make an apology. Well, it's not so. I don't think that it's so. This is this is my turn mm-hmm. to push back for a second. I yeah, don't please. think it's so much saying that Kant said you can get rid of morality. I think this gets us back to the very beginning where Kant mm-hmm. was hopeful somehow. Yes, exactly. That right. that morality would sustain itself through. Despite the critique. Despite the, the critique. Through the primacy yeah. of reason. Yeah. It's somehow. And so what yeah. he missed or failed to account for, um, you know, you could call capitalism, um, but really we would just say power. And so I, I think that what we've seen here is that when you introduce power as a motive, right, mm-hmm. morality dies. And I do not mean is marginalized. I mean, it is sought out <laughs> and, and crushed because that's by the what, 20th century, it dies. It, right. it, it is killed and murdered. Exactly. You're right. You're right. And, That's and, progression. And what you get is fascism. Exactly. Fascism is the systematic, you know, here we can use the word kill. Mm-hmm. Saad is trying to kill it. Khan is not, as you point out, Khan is not trying to kill it. He's no, he's, he's hopeful perhaps, that somehow yeah. this will be okay. Yes, exactly. <laughs> It's going to work out for according to Kant, but again, the Morden wit of that particular, uh, the bitter wit of the of that particular passage, that Adorno and Horkheimer are saying, you know, at least Kant was really kind of a foolish to think this would happen. At least Saad and Nietzsche are consistent. It, it, it does come off that way, and you know, I, th- I think we, we should probably wrap up soon. But before we do, I want to ask: is it is it enough? I mean. You know, for conscious to say, well, this will work out unless things go <laughs> go bad and they do badly, then <laughs> things are gonna and because if they go bad, it's gonna be really, really bad. And he said it, Michael, that quote you we began with. He said it's gonna what I can't remember his wonderful rhetoric, but something about gaping maws and yeah, this and, and so and, I'm I'm so everything is gonna collapse. He's very flowery about it. I'm puzzled by how that can be a thing, I guess. And it maybe- is a, you're right. It's a strange path. It's like, oh, you know, this is going to be great. We're going to have enlightenment and it's going to be awesome. Except, you know what? If this one thing happens, it's going to be the end of civilization as we know it. But that's cool. Whatever. I mean, whatever. It, it, there's, there's just, there's, there's, to my mind, there's either a glaring lack of reason or 
an absolutely inexplicable optimism about that well, statement. And I well, can't how about we quite, go for this? Yeah. I, 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 I can't I, I can't square it with reality. Well, how about this? Uh, look, there's a possibility here. I'm going to make a, a quick argument that maybe it's the latter, that maybe this is an outcome. Uh, this is another way in which Kant and Saad uh, are are kin, really kin. So Saad, you know, as soon as there was the first wave of, you know, uh, as soon as the Bastille was liberated, Saad wrote a pamphlet saying one more step. Frenchman, I can't remember the exact title here, but he wrote a pamphlet where he basically is addressing, still in prison, I think. He's addressing the French public and said, hey, you freed the Bastille. You took control of the government. You got to kill the king. Got to kill the king. One more step, Frenchman, if you want to be true revolutionaries. And so kill the king. So, you know, once you kill the king, you, uh, in other words, Saad is, is writing in a moment of revolutionary fervor. Maybe Khan is too. And maybe revolutionary fervor explains his optimism. He was just so optimistic that human autonomy would fulfill itself in a wonderful way, that we would have an enlightenment kingdom throughout the world. Um, he's also, Kant is also the great thinker of cosmopolitanism, where he imagined the kind of universal human, he starts theorizing about the possibility of a universal politics, a universal humanity of a world government. That all comes from Kant too. So maybe it is optimism, but it's like a revolutionary optimism. I guess, I don't know. I mean, I I, I look at it and it's like the, I'm not, I mean, I'm not trying to, to sum this up with some sort of, you know, yeah, we're not gonna get an reductive thing, that, but it's like, but... but but it's like, wow, okay, so how's this end? Well, there's one of two ways that it's gonna end. Either uh, A, somehow it's all gonna work out, uh, or B, we all get laid and it's horrible. And <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I I just uh, looked up to sort of get the, uh, uh, to, to be a little bit more historically collect. One more effort, Frenchman, if you want to be revolutionaries. That was the polemic that Saad wrote at the height of the revolution. And basically he's saying, come on, you started this thing. We got to kill the king. We got to go the whole way. And that's what Saad is about. He's he feels there is a moment in history, in human history, where we can push it to the limit. And Kant isn't saying let's kill the king, but maybe he has well, this, but, you know, huge optimism about human potential and the and the possibility of a collective reformation, a transformation of everything, really. Yeah, I, I think this is gonna be uh something that we come back to when we uh you know consider the 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 books project in its entirety is you know we're, we're sitting here looking at this in sections um but the the question of what you know the 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 larger implications of enlightenment society really are in terms of the i mean this is i think this is a really good deconstruction that lets us say oh my god this is how we end up with fascism yeah. this is how we end yeah. up with yeah, this is how we end up with genocide, I mean, you, you can you can follow it down all these really terrible rabbit holes, and somehow it's it, they're they're logical conclusions. So I, I think that 
you know, that's that's my that's my walk. That's my let me let me give a quick takeaway that I'm basically yeah. taking away from the uh, internet. As it, well, let's end on a comic note, shall we? Since we haven't necessarily been comic. Um, so I was looking up just a moment ago. I I started googling Saad and one more effort, and I was trying to find the title of that pamphlet that Saad wrote. What Google gave me was Sade. Do you remember Sade, Michael? Yes, so the first thing when I typed up Saad is I, I found out no ordinary love. It's not. By Sade. In a way, that kind of is accurate. No ordinary love. That's my takeaway. I'm done. I'm done. I'm out of here. All right, my drop. Indeed. We're, so um, we will pick up next time, I guess, with the culture industry. Wow, this is the moment we've all been waiting for, isn't indeed, it? Indeed, indeed. So, okay. Um, well, this I think is definitely one of those episodes where um, you know we'll renew our call to uh, those of you listening and watching to you know engage and respond to this. I I think that this is a fascinating sort of juxtaposition here between enlightenment and and the horrors of, of fascism, and um, you know. Yeah, I'd, I'd be curious to to have other voices. You, you know, just along those lines, maybe I, you know, I'll join your your call to readers, to um, listeners and and uh, watchers, viewers, uh, and I'll, I'll add something specific. You know, I, I know you. We've talked about this, Michael. Um, we're struggling to. I mean, we're le- we we're very conscious. We're leaving a lot on the table here in our discussion of everything in this book, right? We leave a lot on the table because there's so much. This is such a rich text. There's so many, uh, av- there's, a, a, for example, a mini history of morality that is, uh, and um, a whole discussion of the ways in which anti-Semitism articulates with misogyny and all these things. There's so many sub-arguments, rich sub-arguments um, in each chapter, but especially in this one, if um, listeners and and viewers um, who are familiar with the text, you know, are thinking, "Hey, man, how did you not talk about this?" You know, uh, we, we, we would like to engage you on that, and you know, we'd like to. Uh, we're thinking about having an episode, a sort of wrap up or post dialectic of enlightenment episode at the end of the series. And we can address, you know, some of the points that we left on the table because we know we're leaving a lot on the table, uh, maybe in that episode. So, yeah, please feel free to uh, to chime in and tell us what we missed, which you think is an important point that we missed. Well, until then, Barry, as always, thank you for your uplifting uh, conversation. Today. Sure. <laughs> Shade moment. I'm Let, always there for uh, that's that, that's where I'm headed as soon as I uh, as I end this. So thank you, and uh, we'll we'll do this again soon. We'll do it again soon. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Critical Media Studies podcast. To find out more about the show, check out our webpage at criticalmediastudiespodcast.com.